Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brudico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business, business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. On our last broadcast in December, Ronaldo, you reported on signs of stability in the U.S. economy. Uh, this month, we have more good news on the home front, but with some major risks that could darken prospects. Uh, the biggest economic story right now is the price of oil. When back in March of 2014, you recommended people get out of oil stocks, not just for the normal moral reasons, but also because you foresaw a drop in oil prices when few were predicting it. That drop happened, and we're all mostly celebrating the declining price of oil, which has dropped by over 50% uh, since March. What are the implications for this, uh, for the for the U.S. economy and for the global economy and for governments around the world? Well, thank you, Matt. Um, I appreciate the the chance to come to revisit this whole oil topic because uh, I've been somewhat appalled by the shallow conversations I've been hearing on traditional news media about the, about the drop of the price of oil. It's almost like they're they're so much locked in in, in happy talk racehorse analysis, you know, is he up, is he down, is he winner, is he loser, that the media has totally missed the point on the oil drop. No, not totally, but, but seriously missed it. So you hear all these commentators now and, and, and quote news analysts who are basically adrift of anything that has to do with economic information, and they, they keep looking for what's the dark side in the drop in oil prices, right? right? <laughs> you know? And I'm going to talk about some of those, by the way. I'm going to specifically talk about the implications in the banking sector and some other places in this conversation today. But I'd like to just state for the record, 90 plus percent of the economy will benefit of the real economy. Now, the real economy does not include the financial economy. So we're going to come back to that separately. But 90 percent plus of the real economy will benefit dramatically from the drop in oil. Everything from with the fact that it will help to close the gap between real wages, because people will be able to keep more of their money, so they'll be able to spend a little bit more. And even though there was a dip in retail spending in December, I think it's a blip. I don't think it's a permanent trend. I think November was up very high. I think January and February will bounce back. I don't see a drag on the economy now. We started this thing with the uh, the doomsday clock, the economic doomsday clock, and we put it at five minutes to midnight a few months ago, and then last month we backed it off a minute and said, well, it's closer to six minutes. We picked up some good news. And I would say it's seven or eight minutes from midnight now because we picked up way more good news. So I do want to comment on unemployment later in the show and my thoughts about that. But to start, I really want to focus on why the drop in oil is so good. You know, it's, it's like that old joke, um, you know, if you've been beating your head against the wall for an hour, you can't imagine why it feels so good when you stop. <laughs> in the case of oil, the, the human society has been now held in the, in the grip of a extraordinarily powerful what's called shared oligopoly, which are the major oil producers and the major oil companies. And that oligopoly has controlled so much extraction of wealth from everybody else in the world, we stopped paying attention. You know, we stop thinking of how do you get to be incredibly rich if you live in the middle of the middle of the Arabian Peninsula 
and all you got is desert in every direction, and you're richer than Croesus in every direction. You're, you're just you're, you're, your wealth is untold. You can build the largest airline in the world, the tallest building in the world. You can you can build the largest shopping center in the world. I understand now Dubai is claiming they also build the longest gold necklace in the world at five kilometers. Anyway, wow. so the point of this is. All that conspicuous consumption you've seen, all the conspicuous consumption you've seen in the oil patch, all the conspicuous oil billionaires you've seen, all that sort of thing, all was a function of this enormous amount of productive capacity that was being sucked like a leech, to mix metaphors, out of the economic system globally. That sucking has dramatically reduced. So it's freeing up resources. And even though Christian Lagrand, who, I'm, uh, who I am um, uh, a, a very big, um, excuse me, Christian Lagarde, who I'm a very big fan of, uh, the head of the IMF, said that dropping oil prices and the stronger U.S. economy alone is not enough to pull the world around. That's true, but it's a big step forward. So what you're going to see now is a dramatic reorientation globally. I believe that the Saudis have achieved much of what they wanted by letting the price drop this low, but I think they're making a major miscalculation. Let me just address that quickly. So it's really great for all the rest of us that we're putting less money in our cars. We're putting less money in home heating oil because it's still a very cold winter back east. We're putting less money into everything in the transportation sector, which has to bring us goods to market. We're paying less money for everything except airfares, which we should be paying less for, and we're not, even though the airlines are having an incredible windfall. I noted that American Airlines the other day said that they were going to share some of that with the employees who took the pay cuts when American was in trouble, and I sure hope they do that. I hope they put that money out. So you have this drop in the price of oil, which is now reducing the outward suction of capital and, and spending power from the economy, and all of a sudden, it frees things up. So to the typical low-income worker in America, who also is getting another benefit starting in January, which is the, the new states who've just adopted the increase in minimum wage, many of them kick off in January, so you're going to see that increase in economic activity. And, the, and, and I believe you got a 5.6% unemployment rate. As I said, I'll talk about that in a second. And that reduction in unemployment means that there will be some additional pressure on wages to go up finally. So I'm looking forward to a, a very strong economy this year for the U.S. We can talk about the globe in a minute. And I'm looking forward to that if we don't shoot ourselves in the foot. So right. why are we seven minutes from, from doomsday, or eight, instead of celebrating happy days are here again? And the answer is because we continue to see extremely disturbing signs on the horizon. Those disturbing signs are gutting Dodd-Frank. So the fact that, that, that the Republican Congress has chosen to start picking apart Dodd-Frank and now they've crossed the line. They're going to they're find that they don't have enough votes to overcome a veto. The president is finally going to draw the line and say, you can't keep destroying Dodd-Frank, which was created to prevent another collapse like we had in 2008. That's why Dodd-Frank was created. We've already lost a huge piece of Dodd-Frank when we allowed banks with this law that was passed by the Republicans, which did get signed because the president was, felt like he was hostage to it. And, the, and, and, and the, the rule says basically they can start trading in derivatives again. And they can do that trading with basically government-guaranteed money. So the, 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 the Glass-Steagall wall between trading for your own account if you're a big banker and trading with your customer's money, that wall's been removed. 
and derivatives are precisely what got us into the crisis in 2008 in the first place. Those of you who want to go back and listen to my shows from three, four years ago, you'll hear me talking incessantly about derivatives as being the wick that was lit that destroyed the economy. So I'm very nervous about all of that, but I also see all the things that are happening, the power and the momentum that's coming from unleashing this oil money. So where will the where will we be with the oil money? Well, we'll we'll end up. My guess is, and I want to put a warning out today, like I did on oil back in March. And this warning is: you need to look to see which banks are the most vulnerable to having serious issues on their balance sheet with loans to the oil patch. Now, some large banks are up to their eyeballs in, 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 in oil-related loans, and they're going to have to look at that because the collateral value for those loans is the oil in the ground. Okay? So that's the balance sheet of a, a big oil company. And clearly the oil in the ground is not as valuable as it was by 45% just, say, three, four, five months ago. So what, what, what's that collateral position worth? That's question one. Question two is, what's their cash flow going to be like now that they're spending, getting so much less in? So what you're, you're already starting to see is a wave of bankruptcies in wildcatters and people in, in, who are doing fracking on high leverage. Uh, watch out for regional banks in that mess, more than national banks, actually, because regional banks got exposed thinking there's no way you can lose lending money to oil companies and people with oil on the ground. Now it turns out there is a way to lose so I'm looking, I'm looking for a significant challenge to certain isolated segments of the banking industry which have become overly involved in leveraged oil investing. I'm also concerned about the balance sheets, which I've been talking about since last, well, for a long time, the balance sheets of all the major oil companies. I started talking about that in March because the value of the oil reserves that they are holding is now a fraction of what it was. And I don't believe they're ever going to pump all of it out anyway because of climate change. Right. So I, my, 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 my quick take is oil stocks, oil prices dropping, great. The, the longer they stay down, the better. The Saudis are miscalculating, if you want to explain why. They're not going to be able to bring it back to $125 a barrel when they want to. Yeah. I want to talk quickly actually about that Saudi gamble. And also some of the major drivers of the reason you think that the Saudis aren't going to be able to reinflate the price later after they clear out the uh, more expensive producers in the market. Oh, I think that, yeah, the, the, we've commented before on the show that the Saudis, who really could keep this price from dropping the way it has, have certain political objectives, which were to basically, they're delighted that Russia is getting punished badly. Um, they're delighted that Iran is getting crippled badly. Um, and they know that they're the probably the least cost producer, so they are banking on the fact that they're going to, and they have already. The, the, the headline yesterday, one of the headlines of the Financial Times of London, was the drop in um, new well in commitments in the many billions of dollars of commitments for oil related projects. So it's a huge story, and people say, well, isn't that going to hurt the economy? That's such a small impact. So that's less than the ten percent. That's negatively affected Mm -hmm. and 90% of us are doing better so it's very good for the consumer economy well in the oil patch what what Saudi Arabia is trying to do is hurt Russia hurt Iran destroy the tar sands project in Canada so they're now the price is so far below what it costs to retrieve a barrel of oil 
which makes the Keystone Pipeline laughable because the Canadians aren't going to want to keep making oil that costs them, say, $60 a barrel if they can only sell it for 45 or 47 That doesn't make sense, and they're not going to keep doing that. You're also going to see marginal fracking projects put on hold where the cost of fracking is too great. And you're already seeing deep water drilling is beginning to plummet. Uh, companies like State Oil are turning back entire franchise areas in the deep sea where they know there's oil because they don't think they can get above ground. Um, 18 months ago, Brazil put out a number that it would cost $75 per barrel at the wellhead to deep to deep drilling off the coast of Brazil. Well, that's not going to happen because they're not going to get 75 at the wellhead. That would require over $100 a barrel at the, at the, at the, at the refinery. Mm-hmm. So what I'm looking at is Russia continuing to get really badly whacked. I'm looking at the Saudi gamble paying off, but not paying off in the ultimate sense because I don't think they're going to be able to get the price back to 125 I think it's going to go back up to by 75 or 80 because the fundamentals in how much oil is being used has changed. And it's not going to automatically revert to the total consumption pattern it was before the price drop because climate change and, and the effects of carbon pollution and GHGs, uh, so like for example, Beijing had the worst day in, in I don't know how long, it's hundreds of times more than it should be in terms of pollution for human health. And so the Chinese know they have a huge pollution problem. So even if oil stays low like it is for some time, the Chinese are not going to stop trying to get their air cleaner. They, they, they've got to for other reasons. Um, the same is true with the, 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 the rush in the West, particularly in Europe that wants to be free from Russian aggression, to push for renewables as a way to get off of the... the pipeline of natural gas from Russia. Um, the, the, the U.S. is happy to see the price drop so low because we've already left the Middle East, basically. We're out of there. And the price of oil going down there just makes it cheaper to run our economy. And we got all the, all the oil we need domestically already. So I think that the when the Saudis have finished nailing Canadian oil and putting a damper on the oil that can be done economically from, from fracking, not all that will be economic, same with natural gas, by the way. And then they also take and, and see that they've done as, as much as they can do to re- reduce or eliminate deep water drilling, which they don't have any of in Saudi Arabia. When those objectives are done, then they'll go, okay, let's let it go back up to, say, 75 80 a barrel. They would like it to go back to $100 a barrel, which every time in the past when they did one of these blips, they were able to recapture all what they lost. They can't do it this time, and that's the new story. Yeah. Another another uh, big consumer you mentioned uh, of fossil fuels that is probably moving away from fossil fuels is India. Do you want to comment on the on the Indian move and how that will affect demand? Yeah, I think in, in, again, India first of all has got probably one of the best governments it's had in since independence in, in the Modi government, and they've correctly analyzed that they have to be a new ener- typically renewable energy related industries to get their manufacturing base up. So they're not going to compete with the Chinese on silicon chips. They're going to compete on renewable energy projects. And Modi's making all the right steps. There was a great article in the Financial Times about last Monday, I guess, analyzing the economic policy of the Modi government. Now, India is fraught with corruption at every level. It has terrible infrastructure problems, although I noticed that the government's going to dramatically increase infrastructure spending for railways, et cetera, which is good. But India... You know, Modi has promised electricity for all by 1991, and the only way he can achieve that is using microgrids. By when? 19, I mean, um, by um, uh, 2019. 2019, okay. Yeah. So the, 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 the goal here 
would be to see India as a producer of renewable energy technologies as a further depressant on Chinese consumption, a further depressant on on Indian consumption, and most likely a further depressant on U.S. and European consumption. And U.S. and Europe are already, even in the face of these oil prices, we didn't stop doing renewables, and we're not. We're going to keep it going and going. And, and, and I know we're going to talk later in the show about Governor Brown. But I want to point out one thing that's like how these factors work together. For those people who didn't notice it, so um, Mikhail Prokhorov, the, the Russian billionaire, multi-billionaire, who owns the Brooklyn Nets, um, basically has got him up quietly up for sale. Why? Because he's getting whacked by all of his Russian investments in the value of the ruble. Now, he'll end up selling the nets, and that's going to turn out to be a brilliant strategy because if you take the cost of what he bought the nets for in rubles and then you convert the sales price into rubles, which are now depressed by 50 60%, he's going to look like a genius. He's going to come out of it just fine. And he can't keep the team because he, won't, he doesn't have the cash flow coming through from Russia. And, and he's an oil guy. So... You're going to see these little things. By the way, there's a big story on the Manhattan expensive real estate. The Russian oligarchs aren't buying anymore. That's okay. Somebody else will buy that $15 million penthouse. It, it, it'll get absorbed in the marketplace. It's just that the Russians can't own anymore. And now the money they've been parking in the U.S. in assets, they're going to have to either leave it in the U.S. because this is where they're going to flee ultimately, or they're going to uh, find other ways to keep it out of rubles. So they're going to, that's how they're going to ride out this crisis. Now, why am I pointing that out? Because when you see the Russian economy, and, and it's clear to me Putin is making a gross miscalculation, he believes this is a blip that will end. He's absolutely wrong. And even when the prices do go back up, they won't go back up to the 100 range. My guess is 75, 80 tops. And, and that will take some pushing by the Saudis. At which point, the Saudis kind of hurt themselves because that's not a lot higher. It is higher probably than their cost to produce, their incremental cost. But it doesn't redeem the value of what they used to think was in the ground in terms of their asset base. So I'm looking to see how this all sorts itself out. But for the next month till the show rares again, I'm saying continued oil prices down. And you're going to see continuing benefits to the American consumer. You're going to see the best benefits concentrated at the lowest income levels in America. You're also going to see some of those benefits eventually in Europe. I haven't seen them yet, but you're going to see start seeing them. Excellent. Well, and, and another and big benefit in Japan, because oh, yeah. Japan imports so much imported uh, fossil fuel. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and, and another piece of that puzzle, I think, is the the continued, as you said, the continued move away from oil in the American economy. We're going to talk more about that in a, in a future in a segment in a little while here. But I, I think it's important that we discuss that economic doomsday clock a little bit. Um, and the econo- the unemployment uh, numbers that you touched on at the be- in your intro, Ronaldo, which is that. I, you know, moving the economic doomsday clock from eleven, from from five minutes to midnight to four minutes uh, to six minutes to midnight to seven minutes to midnight, we're, you're saying now that we're probably at eleven fifty three, which is the best place we've been in in a, in a few months and more you, than a few months even. Can you can you talk about that and why why you see strength there? Sure. Uh, first of all, uh, you're seeing some reasonable restraint by the adult members of the Republican Party. Yeah. Uh, I think it was laughable, everybody thought it was laughable, that Mitch McConnell on the second day in office took claim for the credit for the economy, which he's been bashing all these years and doing everything he can to, to, to stop, to slow down. But even so, he exhibited some good judgment on talking about how it's important to keep that economy growing. They're exhibiting good judgment and talking about they're not going to shut the government down, which would cause a, a collapse in confidence in the U.S. dollar. Remember I told you the dollar's way overvalued? It's, it's still overvalued. 
However, uh, when we when we come back to um, I want to talk about Swiss francs when we come back. Yeah, we'll to, get there. We drill do the drill down. Yeah. But let's hit on the unemployment. I think that the 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 unemployment of five point six percent in the U.S. is constantly misunderstood in the public media. There, there there's been this shibboleth, this 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 belief that's ungrounded in anything real, that huge numbers of people who left the working force would return to the workforce once unemployment dropped. So let me clarify. You're saying that people are saying in the media that that unemployment figure is artificially low and that there's a huge pool of people who want to re-enter the labor force when the economy returns to normal. And they've been saying that for six months as the economy returned to normal, and they're always wrong every month. Uh, the economy right now has recovered all of the jobs it lost in the private sector, and it's already made up in the private sector for all the jobs, probably 900,000 that it lost or more, in the public sector. So the the private sector is, is humming along and will continue to do so unless somebody interposes a major block in its path. In the process of doing that, the unemployment rate has truly dropped to 5.6. Now, are there some people out there who will re-enter the workforce as it tightens and money, more money is available? Sure, there's some. Not significant statistically. Not enough to throw the trend line off, which is that we keep hiring more and more people each month, and at a fairly good number now, 250 to 1,000 plus. So. What we're looking at is a true recovery based on fundamentals that the government did everything it could to stop because it didn't do infrastructure spending, which it still should. Um, it, it, the Republicans did a very foolish thing cutting the IRS by 17%, so now people won't get help with their tax returns. But the real reason that's foolish is when you cut back on the IRS budget, what you do is you cut back on IRS collections, typically. And so it's, it's, it's penny-wise and pound-foolish. I'm, I'm a big believer that the unemployment rate at 5.6, more people, yes, will come into the economy, some. But what they're not looking at is this enormous effect of the age wave. So someone who was trying to write out an unemployment insurance who was 63, and I forget how many, it's like 10,000 people a day are turning 65 now, something enormous like that. So every day, a bunch of those people who were taking unemployment because they weren't 65 yet are now gonna be able to retire using Social Security at 65. So what it's gonna force is a realignment. And if you notice, there's a bill in front of Congress right now to try and get, get principles of Social Security, which ain't got a chance of passing because no Republican is gonna touch, touch that one. That Well, I should say no, I mean, there are crazies. Right. But senior Republican adults will not want to take on reductions in Social Security at this time. It doesn't make sense and it's too politically unpopular. So what I'm seeing is a whole bunch of people who may, by the way, who be, may already be 65, who took a job flipping burgers at $9 or $8 an hour or seven fifty, because all they wanted was a 10 or 20 hour a week job. They've already got social security coming in. They've already got some other forms of financial support. And they're saying, you know, I don't want to work more than 10 hours a week or 15 hours a week. And I want to have to think about it when I do because I only need that much more on top of my Social Security check. Right. So I don't think those people go racing into McDonald's saying, gee, when the wages go up by a dollar an hour, we'll fill in and we'll, we'll, we'll work 40-hour weeks. So I think that the unemployment rate is really accurate at 5.6%. I don't think there's – I've been saying this for many months. I don't think there's a huge overhang. I think the age wave has a lot to do with it. I also think that people's changing lifestyles has got a lot to do with it. And so I'm really, uh, I'm a believer that the unemployment rate is valid. And therefore, you will see some tightening on wages, which is great because finally we're going to start to, we're going to start to hopefully close that gap, even by a small amount between the, the haves, which are the top 2%, and the have-nots, which is the 
Now, this happened, of course, in Clinton years. We know brilliantly that it happened then, and it could happen again. And one would hope that the Republicans would not fight that because the little bit of extra money going to the lower classes, the 98%, the lower classes, right. the 98%, that little bit that they let trickle through actually builds a stronger economy so the people at the top 2% who own that economy will do better as well. And I, it's interesting, I reported on the speech that uh, start, ended, I'll end with Lagarde. Christian Lagarde gave that speech in London that I reported on. And in that speech said one of the three top issues facing the whole planetary economy was the gap between rich and poor. And shortly after she gave that speech, 10 days, two weeks later, the chairman of Solomon agreed. Uh, Goldman. Uh, Goldman. Goldman, right, agreed. So I'm really excited that that message is getting out, that the pressure to keep squeezing the 98% is receding. And if you stop squeezing them, they'll slowly crawl into a better position. Will they ever start to really equalize with 2%? Not as far as I can see. But at least now we won't have this continuing de deterioration. And with more money in their pockets, the consumer will begin spending more money. That's why I believe that December was a consumer blip. And on a quick search, I found out, Ronaldo, that I'm seeing that a, more than a quarter million Americans turn 65 every month now. Quarter of a million. Okay. I was looking at 10,000 a day. Well, well, a month. That's yeah, right. That's it's right. close. Very yeah. close. Okay, so it's, it's close. 25 to 30,000. Yeah. That's hey. amazing. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, and, 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 and so when you put that, that, that is the size of how many people we hired. Right. So that many people are getting the option of staying permanently out or of doing a $7 or $8 job flipping burgers. And last but not least, in addition to the unemployment being accurate, which I think it is, the fact that uh, I, I, there's a whole bunch of states kick in on January 1st with the new minimum wage. Right. And this is a trend that in every single election, in every state, blue and red, where it was on the ballot, it won. People get that the minimum wage has to go up. That it doesn't happen at the federal level is re regrettable, but that it's happening in so many states is really exciting. And when you have states, well, you have cities like Seattle leading with a 15%, dollar, uh, $15 is their target. I think California is going to go for 10 and 25 over a period of a couple of years. So you see a lot of large states doing some really aggressive movement on that minimum wage. I think it's going to continue to pull other states along. And one last point, and I'm going to quit, and that is this. What we have seen in terms of the relative wealth of the red states and the blue states, so the, blue, the red states comprise about 70, 72% of the total land mass of America, but they only generate about a third of the economy. They're far less efficient at generating their own self-sustaining ability. Uh, and, and when you have governors like uh, Brownback in Kansas, who was crazy enough to reduce taxes, took a state that was fiscally sound, Kansas, and dropped it into negative territory, where they really have a budget crisis now, I think that other Republican governors are beginning to get the message that this cutting taxes thing, pushing back on benefits for the poor, for the middle class, for the working people, that's not going to work. And you're going to see the disequilibrium most starkly in 2015, and you've seen it in many, many years, places like California and New York with enlightened social policies are going to continue to prosper at a much faster rate. And you're going to see places, frankly, with retrograde policies like Mississippi, uh, just to pick one as an example, Louisiana probably another one. You're going to see those places continue to deteriorate in relative terms to the economic well-being of the blue states like California, New York, and others. Yeah, and you, you bring up a really important point, which is that politically we're in the in-between time for a few months at least between presidential elections. Um, we have a couple more months here to see what Congress does. 
But there's a really interesting trend that we're just starting to see the beginning of, I think, and it's going to be a huge factor in the 2016 presidential race on the Republican side, which is the rise of Republican populism. Rick Santorum, who pretty much finished second to Mitt Romney um, and is one of the hardest right conservatives on social issues, has a very populist bent on the economy. Um, And he said that he's probably running for president and he is carving out space on on the Republican side to talk about a national minimum wage increase because it's so popular. And he and, you know, others, others on the right are seeing this. Mike Huckabee is another one who's probably running for president. And they're seeing you're, we're watching the right and the hard right on social issues embrace economic uh, the economic drivers that are so popular, like the raise in minimum wage. It's something to look out for and, and, and keep track of because it's definitely so popular among the people that the 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 very hard right is embracing it to see if they can uh, it, it, make example. it work for them. Yeah, another one on the social issue, immigration. So the House voted to gut. Uh, a big chunk of what Obama did in the immigration because Congress never acted. They're trying to disguise that as saying, well, we're just trying to restrain a president who acted without congressional authority. Baloney. It's anti-immigrant, and they know it. And they don't. They could not get all 100% of the Republicans to vote for it, no Democrats, right. which means it's not going to happen. And they took a shot at basically the Hispanic community for no good reason. And then you see somebody like Mark Rubio going on the John Stewart show which is not exactly his home base, and defending uh, a more activist approach to immigration. But the big one, I think, is Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush has said he embraces immigration reform. Now, the right wing has been crazy about that all along. For Bush, who's clearly running for president, Romney's probably his main competitor, I think more than Christie, frankly. And I think that Bush, by embracing immigration, is saying this is something we got to do if we're going to be competitive in the national elections. And if the Hispanic computing, you know, Bush speaks fluent Hispanic, fluent Spanish. He's married to a Hispanic woman. Yeah. So Bush clearly understands the power of that voting block, right. and that he's going to be the probably one of the two top candidates to get money from the Republican adults is an interesting breakup in in, in the Republican side. It would be unfair, however. Do not focus for a moment on Elizabeth Warren. Uh, the popular strain of what Elizabeth Warren is doing, which I'm, I was amazed, she succeeded in getting enough senators, 25% of the Democratic caucus in the Senate, told President Obama, don't hire that guy for assistant secretary of treasury. The guy from Wall Street. Yeah, and, and because his track record is not that of pro-enforcement for the little people. And so Warren went on the warpath, all by herself initially, again, and she stopped it. He withdrew his, his, his nomination was withdrawn on Monday. Go Elizabeth Warren. So people are going, this. let's let Elizabeth Warren run, Bernie Sanders run. Elizabeth said clearly, she isn't running. And, and smartest decision she could make. Because boy, is she going to be able to push a lot of issues. So it's almost like the Democrats have two parties. There's the Elizabeth Warren wing of the Democratic Party, which is the old Democratic Party. And then you got the centrist Democratic Party. And then you got the Blue Dogs. So you got three factors, and it looks like the Elizabeth Warren wing is now much more powerful than the Blue Dogs, yeah. which means that the centrists will start edging that way, creating a clearer choice with the Republicans. So I see that split in the Democratic side. Warren won't run. Bernie Sanders may or may not, but he won't be a significant candidate if he does. Unfortunately, unfortunately, he just isn't going to be one, so it's not a whole lot of conversation. The real issue, then you go back to the Republicans and you say, gee, you got a guy who's trying to run a populist push like Santorum, which is the only prayer he's got because he's otherwise so bad on social issues. 
You got a guy in the Republican Party like I think Paul Rand is Rand Paul, I think, is one of the smartest guys out there in the, on the Republican side. He's already triangulating for the youth vote, being with the you know pro marijuana. He's triangulating for um, a number of positions which would not be considered Tea Party, and he's trying to come up the middle between Bush and Romney, and I think has a decent chance of doing that. So I see that the Republican Party has given it's taken control back from the Tea Party, so it's no longer controlled by the Tea Party. But it's still a huge chunk of their base. And what we're going to have to see is what happens in the primary season. Now, between now and then, however, starting immediately this month and next month and the month after, we have to see if the adults in the Republican Party will keep the right wing of the Republican Party and those people who are, and I would characterize, the right wing in the Republican Party is still Rubio, it's still Ted Cruz, it's Louis Gohmert and a whole bunch of people in the House, those people are not going to have the ability, I think, to swing major legislation like they used to. However, they're going to, there's going to be deals cut along the way. And as those deals get cut, I think you're going to see the Republicans being more centrist than in the past and the Democrats being a little bit more liberal or more, more um, humanitarian than they've been in the past, which is going to keep the distinction actually clearer for the, for the voting public going into the 2016 elections. It's going to be interesting, that's for sure. Um, and we'll keep uh, reporting on it as we move forward. But quickly for our listeners, the World Business Academy is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our work relies on people like our listeners of the show to join in and help support it. We have a $25 a month associate member level that I'd like to in- invite and encourage you to sign up for if you're listening. If you go to our website at worldbusiness.org and click on become a member on the right side of the page, you'll be taken to the page where you can sign up. Your support is essential if we're going to be able to keep fighting for a safe future for our families and for civilization. Um, and, you know, I, I really think it's important to look at the good news, uh, especially in the state of California. I, I think we can agree, Ronaldo, that the state of California has a very bright future for the next five years or so uh, if, it's, if everything else stays on course. Yeah, the caveat would be if the U.S. economy doesn't get in severe trouble, in which case I'd rather still be in California than almost any other place. It, that's the only thing I can see taking it off the rails. If the U.S. economy even goes sideways, California has a phenomenal four years ahead of it. Uh, I, I got a, an email from our good friend, uh, a blog post from Graham Richard over at the Advanced Energy Economy Group. And he said that more than 431,000 advanced energy jobs exist right now in California. It's 2.4% of the state's uh, workforce are in advanced energy positions. And it's growing faster than almost any other segment in California. It's amazing, yeah. And you were going to comment on the governor's speech, his so, January 5th inaugural speech. Yeah, so Governor Jerry Brown, who uh, I've been following for a long time, but not quite as long as some of you out there. <laughs> <laughs> like me. Uh, he This is his fourth term. It's unprecedented. There's never been a four-term governor in California. And he made a speech that's, I think, really laid out the agenda for his next four years. I'm going to read a part of it here because I think it's so important uh, to what we're going to talk about next, which is our plan for a 100% renewable energy transformation for the planet starting here in California. So here's this is from Governor Brown's speech, and we'll link to it so you can uh, read the full thing. California has the most far-reaching environmental laws of any state and the most integrated policy to deal with climate change of any political jurisdiction in the Western Hemisphere. Under laws that you have enacted, we are on track to meet our 2020 goal of one-third of our electricity from renewable energy. 
We lead the nation in energy efficiency, cleaner cars, and energy storage. These efforts, impressive though they are, are not enough. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, backed up by the vast majority of the world's scientists, has set an ambitious goal of limiting warming to 2 degrees Celsius by the year 2050 through drastic reductions of greenhouse gases. If we have any chance at all of achieving that, California, as it does in many areas, must show the way. We must demonstrate that reducing carbon is compatible with an abundant economy and human well-being. So far, we've been able to do that. Now it's time to establish our next set of objectives for 2030 and beyond. Toward that end, I propose three ambitious goals to be accomplished within the next 15 years. One, increase from one-third up to 50% of our electricity derived from renewable sources. Two, reduce today's petroleum use in cars and trucks by up to 50% and double the efficiency of existing buildings and making health, make heating fuels cleaner. Just, yeah, just go ahead. interject there. And notice... That speech was given after the fall in the price of oil. That's my point. What the Saudis are miscalculating is that people like Governor Brown see as their legacy. And that includes the premier of China. That includes the prime minister of India. That includes everybody in the, Angela Merkel, everybody in Europe. They all know they have to continue to reduce fossil fuel consumption even when the prices are this low, which is why the Saudis are miscalculating. It's not going to bounce back up that high. Absolutely. And I think that's a shift in consciousness that's really important to, to mark. The oil companies, not surprisingly, are probably going to miss that. And Saudi's the kind of the biggest oil company in the world. They don't understand that consciousness has shifted and, and that people are actually taking these goals seriously to stop climate change. They think it's very moderate. They think it's much more modest and less of a powerful force than that it really is. So I want to I want to finish up here because this is important. Back to Jerry Brown's speech. We must also reduce the relentless release of methane, black carbon, and other potent pollutants across industries. And we must manage farm and rangeland, forest and wetlands so they can store carbon. All of this is a very tall order. It means that we continue to transform our electrical grid, our transportation system, and even our communities. I envision a wide range of initiatives, more distributed power, expanded rooftop solar, microgrids, an energy imbalance market, battery storage, and fuel, full integration of information technology and electrical distribution, and millions of electric and low-carbon vehicles. How we achieve these goals and at what pace will take great thought and imagination mixed with pragmatic caution. It will require enormous innovation, research, and investment, and we will need active collaboration at every stage with our scientists engineers, entrepreneurs, businesses, and officials at all levels. So, Ronaldo, I think that that sets up what we've been talking about with the clean energy moonshot extremely well. Um, our plan is slightly more aggressive. <laughs> we think we can, instead of achieving 50% renewable in 15 years, we think we can get to 100% renewable in 10 years if our plan is embraced. But it was great to hear him name check microgrids, and energy storage, as well as uh, solar, uh, expanding those drastically as, as the techniques for going forward. And I think that our, my prediction is that once those are actually embraced with the full force of the government in California, we'll see an even more rapid um, uh, uh, implementation than, than the governor's predicting. What do you think? Yeah, I think that, um, first of all, I think Calvary's in great shape. And let's remember how this started. I, and I think Brown's done a great job of writing this properly. Um, the people of the state of California passed two initiatives that have really set the stage for why California has gone from the basket case it was, to, uh, where it was in, in basically issuing, it, it was issuing IOUs at one point, it was so broke. And now its credit rating keeps getting restored higher and higher, and I, I predict that will continue to be the case. 
for those of you are listening, uh, California general obligation bonds uh, will continue to be improved in terms of the credit rating. So the future interest rates will be lower. Therefore, I believe it's possible that we will see uh, you know, a st- even a stronger California because those two initiatives, one was get the people to pick the districts so that the lines wouldn't be gerrymandered, so that you'd give a fairer representation of the people in Sacramento voting for laws equal to who the population are they represent. So that was one thing we passed. The other thing we passed was a very simple rule that said, from now on, 50% plus passes the budget, no two-thirds required. Interesting that that paralleled the whole Senate thing being tied up last year with, 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 with the um, filibuster. Well, by passing that rule, it took away the power from every single legislator across the state to hold the state hostage for some pork barrel project they wanted to get them to buy in. And as a result, California couldn't pass a balanced budget for years and years and years. Now we pass them on time. They're balanced. In fact, they're surplus. We just we just passed a rainy day tax on ourselves. We've just passed a, a bond indebtedness um, to improve uh, our, our investment strategy. So the state is poised not only because of Silicon Valley, and now because of the biotechnology revolution happening down the southern part of the state, in San Diego, that area, and because we are basically funding innovation globally through our, 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 our uh, equity base, which is built out of Silicon Valley, California, and it's now it's a leader, as Brown correctly related, it's by far the leader in all these different renewable energy technologies and approaches. California is doing all the right things. And I predict the California economy is just going to keep getting better and better and better. And that 2.4% you quoted of jobs that are available, which are in technically competent jobs with good middle-class wages, that's going to get bigger, not smaller. So, and, and the neat thing is that's all happening with, a, with an economy that has almost no manufacturing base, which demonstrates that you can have cheap manufacturing in China and it can work for you, not just against you. In fact, I want at some future show, we should talk about how the entire global economy needs to be rebalanced with this new awareness. But, but, the, but for today, the takeaway is Brown's absolutely right. He's going for two legacy projects, basically. The bullet train, which he'll get up the inland part of California. He just, they just threw the first shovel. It's taken way too long. It's way too modest an effort. It's going to go way too slow. But it's the first step in a, in a, in a long journey. And I, I love the fact that I remember when I was very young, I was in the Bay Area, and they could never get BART passed. And then when they got it passed, they couldn't get it to the airport. And then they couldn't get it to San Mateo County. BART is the heart blood. It, it, look what it has done for the economy of the Bay Area. It has been the, it has been like the, the, it's like an artery that keeps pumping blood efficiently, economically. People move around. It's like it's so much superior to anything that you can do on a road that BART has become an engine for economic growth as infrastructure properly spent does. And you're going to see more of that infrastructure spending in California, which will further boost California and create more jobs. So I'm, I'm very bullish on California. I think Brown's doing all the right things, tackling renewable energy as a legacy project. Second legacy project is the bullet, and I predict within a year, his third legacy project will be improving education and availability of education. One last point real quickly. Notice that when he picked on uh, methane in that speech, that just a couple days ago, Obama announced new methane rules are coming, which is phenomenal because those of you who listen to the show know we've identified methane as a bigger problem even than carbon dioxide. And as a result, anything we do to start eliminating or reducing methane emissions, incredibly important. Yep. And uh, just for our listeners, the, the Clean Energy Moonshot, we've talked about previously on the show. But if you have, would like more information, I'll, I'll include a link in the email that goes out for this radio show. And I will also uh, post a link on the show page. So please do check out on our website, the Clean Energy Moonshot. And actually, there's, a, there's another. We have an ulterior motive. You should tell people that the more people who 
go online to that link you're going to send, the better shot we get of Ray being recognized with how novel. For those of you listening, the World Business Academy is the first and still the only institution on the planet that has designed a 100% renewable microgrid. That's the future. That's how Modi's going to get electricity to every village. That's how we're going to be able to change this 19th century technology of the long-distance transmission lines and eliminate it. So it's really key that you go on and, and, and see what we're writing in the Moonshot Project. I had someone ask me just yesterday, is it pie in the sky to be able to switch California in 10 years off of all fossil and nuclear? And the answer is unequivocally, no, it is not pie in the sky. In fact, we know exactly how to do it. Now, can we get the political will? I can't tell you that. I'm not a politician. But I know that the technology is there, the financing is there, and the information know how to do it is there. So yep. I hope we get to it. Yep. And so with that, Ronaldo, I want to, I want to turn to our economic drill down, which is an, a, a very close look at some certain asset classes, starting with a call you made about Swiss francs. Yeah. So I'm really pleased, um, as people know, listen to the show about six, seven weeks ago, or maybe, might, was it two shows ago? or Two. Two shows. It was like this, now at this point about... November. Nine weeks ago, yeah, yeah. I made the. I said I'm going to really recommend that uh, George Gay, who manages the Academy Advice portfolio, to put Swiss francs in that portfolio, because I saw Swiss francs as a smart play on the global market for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, and I'm glad I believe that, that that George did that. I think we have Swiss francs in that account, and the good news is that Swiss francs are up 39 percent against the euro, and they're even up against the dollar right now. Huge change in Swiss francs. I explained why Swiss francs would outperform every other currency, and now they're outperforming U.S. currency, which, as I said, they would do. And I'll be happy to keep explaining that. If people want to ask me questions next time, please do, because I love talking about why that was such a good call. I don't, I couldn't, I don't know of anybody else that made that call but this show, and clearly that call was right now, just like we were on the oil prices. So um, put in a plug here for the Academy Advised Portfolio that, um, that uh, First Affirmative manages and selects... Uh, and for those of you who want to be able to hear the private conversation between myself and George Gay, which is a one-hour conversation we tape record, after the show, usually five days afterwards, when George goes and talks to his people and his investment committees and then he comes back and he, he picks apart in minute detail this broadcast, and then he and I talk about what the logical outcome would be if you followed that advice, and then that's what George uses to design the fund called the World Business Academy Advised Portfolio. And I would urge people to get a hold of us or First Affirmative and check out that portfolio because it's the, the only way you can get into George's shop with as little as $25,000 in, in assets. And it's the best place for your money to likely parallel what you're hearing and the advice we're giving on this show. That said, um, can I go, turn to Lisa? Yeah, go ahead. Let's, let's take a couple of these listener questions that came in. And if you have questions about either the Academy Advised Fund at First Affirmative or other questions for general questions about economics, please do write to us at info at worldbusiness.org. I'm going to take uh, two listeners' questions this time. And if um, anyone who doesn't get their questions answered on the air, we will send you an email um, and maybe do it in a subsequent show. So please keep sending them in. But I'm going to do two today. I'm going to do Lisa, who wrote with some really good questions. Uh, quote, I hear you speak of opportunity in investing with alternative energy sectors. I wonder what other sectors may do well and not do uh, not add harm to the world and its people. So she goes on to suggest, wouldn't food security be a good area? Answer is absolutely yes. I've been food a big, security, yeah. Yeah, been a big proponent of this. Look, more and more people, climate change will put more and more pressure ultimately on 
our ability to grow and feed the planet. You're going to see this now with it's going to come out in stark relief in many, many ways. Starting in 2015, people didn't really see the effect yet in 2014, starting in 2015. But watch out because a food related stock could be considered Monsanto. And I'm not sure I would be willing, I certainly wouldn't want to own Monsanto stock in terms of what they're doing, trying to capture the market for growing all food by their GMO strategy. And by the way, the Academy, as you know, has a strong position, we believe, that we, like all their civilized nations in Europe and Latin America, we should require that when you use GMOs in a product, you label it. And we've, we want to advise everybody that there's a great young man named Taylor who started walking on January 5th from Santa Monica, California. He's walking to the East Coast from ocean to ocean with a very simple request. Please let me know what's in my food. We're not taking an anti-GMO position. We're taking a, just tell us if they're there. Now, what happens when you tell people that there are GMOs in the food, as has happened in Europe and has happened in Latin America, is that people then often choose not to buy them. But that's okay. That's their choice. And if they want to choose to buy them, they can. So this is a truth and labeling, a fairness thing. And we'll, you'll be hearing more about our truth and labeling project because we're going we're gonna to be looking at some beverages as well as some food items. But basically, food security is a good one. I, um, I got to tell you, I've, um, I've been an organic farmer. I started farming organically gosh, 24 years ago. Uh, I ceased doing it about five years ago. So I had a very long run as an organic farmer. Uh, I've been an organic consumer for over 30 plus years. And I have found many different ways to invest in food companies in the organic sector. And I love it because they don't buy pesticides, which we're going up in price constantly. The organic sector is growing at 20% compounded when the rest of the market's pretty much been static. So I love food security when it's tied to growing local. I love it when it's tied to organic. I love it when it's tied to what's good to put in your body. And you will find that the companies you'll end up making the most money with are the ones that also recognize that. I'll give you an example. Um, Pepsi-Cola and Coca-Cola are both rushing as fast as they can to find products that don't involve brown sugar fizzy water. Because brown sugar fizzy water is plummeting in sales, which it should, because it's bad for you. On every level, it's bad for you. But So they're going into bottled water in a big way. They're going into, you know, the Owen Odwalla now. There are any number of plays that Pepsi and Coca-Cola are making to get into a smarter food profile and beverage profile. And I think those are worth watching. Uh, there's still a lot of internal resistance at both Coke and Pepsi. I'd say Pepsi's a little further along than Coke. But still, that they're both going in that direction is a good example. I think you, you, there are other companies that you will see that are learning how to be smarter about sustainability. Um, so I think that you'll see people uh, um, taking even big companies on board and saying, gee, how can, we, how can we find the companies that know what to do and to be smart about it? And I think what you're going to find is that over time, people will be willing to invest and there'll be increasing ways to invest in the food security sector. But I would say caution don't get involved with um, things which are not um, uh, which are not sound for other reasons. I'll give you an example. You got a guy like uh, Paul Pullman, who's the CEO of Unilever. <clears throat> Most people consider one of the more enlightened, effective CEOs in the world. I'm privileged to call him a friend. Uh, Paul is moving in all of these areas in a very smart, methodical way, and as a result, Unilever is doing very, very well. <coughs> even though some of its traditional brands are not in that same growth area. He's trying to move the company to that growth area. 
people don't realize that CEO of Nepal's company in India, which now they're selling also in Latin America, a water filter that doesn't require electricity, that doesn't have to be changed except every few years, and you can put any garbage water in you want at the top and you get pure water to drink out the bottom. Uh, this is huge, using gravity flow. Uh, and they're selling them like hotcakes. Well, that's just a smart thing that nobody knew Unilever was doing because it's not a big chunk of Unilever. But see, it's the chunk that matters for tomorrow. And that Paul and other senior executives of major companies are doing that gives me reason to say, okay, these guys are trying to straddle successfully the shift from sunset industries to sunrise ones. So thank you, Lisa, for that question. I also had another one with Lisa here, which was interesting. She wanted to know um, about bank regulation. How does one protect oneself from bank malfeasance? And I, I, I took a question here at this part of the show because I've already spoken to watch out for banks. And I'm really proud of you for figuring that out too. Um, the best headline I've seen on banking was yesterday in the front page of the Times. Oh no, I guess Tuesday. In which they said, bankers' bonuses will be down this year. Boo-hoo. And what they're talking about is the bonus only dropping by as much as 10% in Europe. But that's going to put it above the bonuses they got as recently as 2011, 2011. So they're not hurting in the banking sector. They're not hurting at all. But what I do think is going to happen this year is you're going to see people, and I think it was Morgan Stanley, totally missed their, uh, their, uh, their numbers and their stocks getting hurt for it. I think that there are all sorts of exposures at Morgan Stanley. I think Jamie Dimon's been running a dirty ship and he's, it's, it's coming home to roost on him. And I think that there are other people who you ought to be looking at who run companies, banks particularly, where you think their policies probably weren't in the best interest of the society or even their shareholders, but they got away with it. I would put Jamie Dimon in that category. And I would say, now, what's the sustainable companies look like? Well, banks with lots of wildcat debt, highly leveraged, not a good risk right now. And as I said, regional banks particularly. So the best thing you can do about guarding yourself from banks' malfeasance is to start by not investing in the ones that are going to get hurt just because they're so big. I also believe that if there is another crisis, which could be brought on by derivative trading, could be brought on by gutting Dodd-Frank, if there is another financial crisis, which is what the doomsday clock's all about, banks are not in a position today to get bailed out the way they were. So they aren't too big to fail anymore in many ways. And I'm not sure the government has the ability to do what they did the last time. So watch out for bank malfeasance and uh, take advantage of the Consumer Protection Bureau that now exists to help you with your interactions. Um, there's um, There are some other great questions I, I'm not going to take, but I wanted to get one from Carol. Um, Carol's basically asking about what to do since she's had some serious problems through uh, both her retirement fund being reduced uh, due to a, a crisis that she was part of, um, her rental properties that she'd saved up for, now gone, homes underwater, she's on fixed income, and she's trying to still save some money, a, a modest $100 a month. And I want to congratulate you, Carol, because whatever you can save, whether it's 100 or it's 25 if you save something every month, you'll be a very happy camper in the end. Uh, she's asking, what can I do to get return on my $100 a month? And the answer is, regrettably, the way the markets are rigged, there's not much you can do. However, I would urge you to go online and open an online um, account I'm not sure who does the best interest right now for what was called demand deposits. So that's when you can put the money in and what they do is they tap your checking account, you identify it. They pull the money up into a non-retail bank bank, a bank that doesn't have a bunch of like Ally Capital or um, others. Um, and, you, and, and they can give you a higher return because they don't have the employees in the branch structure. 
and you can get your money back usually within three days by just an electronic transfer to and from your checking account. Those types of accounts, and I could look it up and I didn't have time before the show today, uh, if you send an email uh, to Matt, um, I'll, I'll give you a reference to what the percentage you can earn today on that $100 because you can open these accounts for as little as $100 and then keep accumulating until you get enough resources that you can afford to put your resources someplace where you can get a much better yield, uh, which would be something like the Academy Advice Portfolio where hopefully you'll get a much better yield. So those are the two questions I could take for today, and um, I don't know if that if we're out of time or not, Matt. Yeah, we're getting close. Is there anything you wanted to close with? How much time do we have? About five minutes. Oh, sure. Um, Four minutes, sorry. Yeah, I think that the, the number one thing I want to say is that the stock market isn't crashing. So the people who are concerned about three days in a row of a bad stock market should look at where it was uh, a year and a half ago. In fact, I think the stock market is still fairly heavily priced. Um, I also think that the reason you're seeing these downward cycles in the stock market right now is you're seeing some profit taking is because of what happened with Morgan Stanley. Uh, I think smart people on Wall Street, I'm not the only guy who figured out that banking's got some exposure now in the oil patch. I think that's got people nervous. Clearly people are nervous about the fact that Angela Merkel continues to do everything wrong in Europe in terms of her austerity program. Um, Britain is not taking the steps it could to be a bigger engine of economic growth. Uh, by the way, I do believe that India will do at least 6% this year. I don't think India's fallen off the wagon. And I think China's going to do at least 6-7% this year. U.S. is going to do at least, I, last time I gave a quote, I said I, was, I, I thought we could do 3.2% this year. I don't see a reason to change that at this point in time. It might be a little high. We'll see, if, again, what the Republicans do. They could take it to zero or negative, but they could also stand by and let it just happen. And if we did a couple of smart things, like infrastructure spending, not on the XL pipeline, which is only going to make money for the oil companies. Remember, if they do the XL pipeline, which is going to be kind of empty now because the Canadians are going to stop making tar sands gas, oil. But if you build that pipeline, you get very few jobs out of it. And at the end, all the oil that goes down, it goes to refinery that the, that's owned by the oil companies and by law has to be shipped off seas, sh shipped offshore. So we don't even get the benefit economically of it at all. It's, just, it's a complete boondoggle. And now with the tar sands in jeopardy as an investment, the XL pipeline makes absolutely no economic sense whatsoever. It never did make a lot of economic sense. Now it makes no economic sense. And that there's pressure from the Republicans to do it, I think, is an example of where politics is winning out over economics. But that same amount of money that the XL pipeline would have cost if, we, if the Congress would permit us to make that because they call it a jobs deal, if they let us put that into roads, railroads improvement, um, infrastructure, pipes, um, electrical circuits, all power the systems, yeah. power systems, all the money that they got, if they would just let us use some of it to rebuild the country. It's, it's kind of funny. The, um, there was a, an interesting little, uh, little smidgen of a note about how Brazil's, foreign, Brazil's domestic investment bank is lending money for airports and infrastructure projects in other parts of the world when Brazil desperately needs infrastructure. So why aren't they lending for their own infrastructure in their own country? And, and it's now becoming a big topic of concern that the Brazilian Benz Bank, the, 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 the state bank, has been funding a bunch of crony capitalists and that it needs to stop doing that if Brazil is going to crawl out of the out of the water hot water that it's in. I think that's excellent. It shows that Brazil is going to have to take the medicine like everybody else. You can't be a crony capitalist anymore. Uh, it's, it, it still makes money, but not like it used to. 
And you're probably better off right now looking at the economy and saying, okay, if the market's not going to collapse, because it's not right now, there's no reason to, but if it's going to keep readjusting because the banking sector weighs heavily on the Dow because the oil patch is going to continue to have problems you're going to be hearing about weighs heavily on the Dow. At the end of the day, average Americans are going to do better every single day that oil prices stay at this level, which now they're below $50 a barrel. So take that as a given. Know that retail sales are going to go up in the first quarter from prior periods. And my expectation is that um, that will drive earnings. Earnings growth will keep the market at fairly high levels. And this whole thing will get sifted out. And last but not least, and I want to end where I started, don't cry for the oil companies. There is no downside that's significant to these prices being down. Anybody that tells you otherwise is not being honest. It's nothing but upside. 90% upside, almost no downside. So I urge everyone to take great pleasure in the pain that Russia's experiencing, that Iran's experiencing, and that the oil patch is experiencing because that, that pain they're experiencing is finally unlocking the productive capacity of our country, which has been bloodsuckered dry for at least seven decades. So on behalf of the World Business Academy, thank you for listening. Please come to our website at www.worldbusiness.org to connect with us in between shows. And tune in next month for the next episode of New Business Paradigms. Until then, thank you for listening, and please share this link with your friends.